Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Indiana voters will decide next month whether to follow 19 states in adopting a constitutional amendment to protect the right to hunt and fish. Today on Noon Edition, we're talking about the proposal. You can ask questions on Twitter at Noon Edition or join us on the air by calling in at 812-855-0811. Our guests today are Tim Maloney. He's the Senior Policy Director at the Hoosier Environmental Council, and he's joining us in the studio here. Hello, Tim. Todd, Hello. Todd Adkins is the Director of Research for the NRA's Institute for Legislative Action. And Aaron Wong is the Indiana Senior State Director for the Humane Society of the United States. And both of them are joining us on the phone. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Hi, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Bob Zaltzberg is out today, so Joe Wren joins me as co-host. Welcome, Joe. Hi, thank you. So today I want to just get started by just reading the question that's going to be on the ballot. It's relatively short here, and then we'll, we'll kick off our conversation. It's, it's titled Public Question 1, and it reads, Shall the Constitution of the State of Indiana be amended by adding a Section 39 to Article 1 to provide that the right to hunt, fish, and harvest wildlife shall be forever preserved for the public good, subject only to the laws prescribed by the General Assembly and rules prescribed by virtue of the authority of the General Assembly to promote wildlife conservation and management and preserve the future of hunting and fishing. So our State House reporter was covering this issue back in 2013. So I'm just wondering how we got from that to voters seeing it on the ballot right now. So um, let's go ahead and, Tim, you, you want to just start and explain how we how we got here? Sure. Uh, under Indiana law and the Constitution, to amend our state constitution, a proposal has to uh, be approved by two separate elect two separately elected sessions of the Indiana General Assembly. And so these proposals in the form of uh, legislative resolutions have been coming up for a number of years and, and been discussed, and uh, earlier versions did not make it through that approval process, but here in the last um, uh, four or five years, uh, the proposals got more attention and did end up being uh, adopted by two separately elected sessions of the General Assembly, and that's what it takes to put it on the ballot. So that's how we ended up with uh, this language being on the ballot this year. And Todd, can you explain how the NRA was involved in sort of helping craft this language? Sure. Uh, so this basic issue, um, although Vermont has had such a protection since its very founding um, in 1777, we obviously took great note when uh, various uh, anti-hunting organizations began to push, not necessarily on a nationwide basis, on a somewhat limited basis uh, starting in the late 80s, early 90s, um, basic ideas to, to restrict uh, hunting in some form or fashion. 
Uh, so discussions kind of started in the mid-90s when we really started to see with more regularity this stuff showing up on the ballot is in various states. That is giving questions that are normally left to fish and wildlife managers, um, questions about hunting uh, types, hunting restrictions of various sorts. This started to, there were various discussions started about whether or not we needed to promote, push for these constitutional protections at the state level, and we began to do so. Um, and over the last 20 or so years, Indiana is now on the ballot this year, we've been promoting this issue, pushing for this issue to protect what is, um, you know, this, this rich tradition of hunting and fishing in this country that has led to what is essentially, you know, the world's envy when it comes to fish and wildlife management, because plain and simple, answer to the story is hunters and anglers, those who hunt and fish, are the financial backbone of our fish and wildlife management uh, management paradigm in Indiana and across the country. And without that backbone, um, uh, you know, we're going to be in real trouble when it comes to protecting and promoting our wildlife, fish and wildlife resources. So we see this as an important mechanism by which um, we can actually uh, protect this tradition, which has this critically important financial, um, which provides the financial backing for our fish and wildlife management programs generally. Um, we see this as a critical protection, and, and now we've got it in, in Indiana. And Aaron, I want to give you a chance to respond. I know the Humane Society has not been in support of this, so if you can talk about your position. Sure. Um, yeah, I did testify in front of the state legislature about this issue when it was up in 2014 and 15, and then, <clears throat> but I didn't testify this year. They just had the prescribed ballot language as a Senate Bill 57. But um, it is something that we oppose because it's it's unnecessary. I and mean, this is a state constitution. It's a sacred document. We don't change it um, <clears throat> to put something that's been a recreational activity or privilege uh, as a constitutional right in this state. So it's unnecessary. We really think that it's going to have unintended consequences that haven't been thoroughly thought through and that may not be evident to voters as they're going to um, going to vote and seeing this question on the ballot. So we're, we're concerned about that. Um, and we are concerned the fact that it's going to tie the hands of lawmakers, wildlife biologists, and the people who are making the decisions about um, wildlife management and how we deal with wild animals and the environment. Okay, today on Noon Edition, we're talking about the right to hunt and fish. 812-855-0812 is the number to call in with your questions. And Todd, you were, you know, this is already on the books in 19 states. So if, if you right. can talk about how this has been playing out in those states yeah. that do have this on the books now. And I'd love to, in direct response, um, to some of the comments that Aaron just had. Um, so this has been on the books, uh, as I said, in Vermont since its founding, but the, the modern uh, push for this really began in Alabama in 1996, uh, went to Minnesota in 1998, and then now we've got uh, a strong number of states that have done this. Uh, a lot of these allegations of the sky might fall if we actually go ahead and do this, Fish and wildlife managers won't be able to do what they need to. It actually hasn't come to pass at all. Um, the, the need for this, and, and, and I think when, and I see this allegation that this is just a recreational pastime 
Uh, we don't treat recreational pastimes with constitutional uh, protections, generally speaking. Well, that kind of goes to our point, is that there is not a level of appreciation from the anti-hunting crowd about how important those who hunt and fish are to the success of fish and wildlife management at the state level and how they have been the backbone now for decades. If you look at how important hunting and fishing are to the state of Indiana, we are talking about hundreds of millions of dollars that have been contributed to that state over time. In a typical year now, uh, the state reaches nearly 20 mil or, or receives nearly $20 million in federal uh, matching funds that are, are based on firearm ammunition purchases, firearm purchases themselves, archery equipment, fishing equipment. So when it comes to, you know, how the anti-hunting uh, groups have pushed to remove us from the equation, it shows how important this is. It is not just a recreational activity like golfing or baseball or something like that. It provides for all, all of Hoosier's enjoyment of our abundant fish and wildlife resources because it's the core of the financial backing. In fact, the Indiana DNR re receives upwards of 90% of its funding based on hunting and fishing activities. Now, if you remove that from the equation, it, we can no longer call it just a recreational exercise that doesn't deserve uh, constitutional protections. I say quite to the contrary is whether uh, you're going to go bird watching in a fish and wildlife area, you're using a boat ramp. There are countless times that even if you don't hunt and fish, you rely on those who hunt and fish to provide this financial backing through license fees and taxes and everything else. So it's almost like the Indiana DNR, nobody could imagine it if hunting and angling fishing activities weren't taking place because it's, it's the financial means by which we get to enjoy fish and wildlife resources statewide. So we can't just characterize it as just a recreational pastime because it means so much to all the citizens of the state, even if they don't immediately recognize it, I guarantee they enjoy it throughout the year. Uh, Tim, you had something you want to add? Uh, yes. Uh, the Hoosier Environmental Council, we collaborate and work with um, people that fish and hunt and, and those types of organizations all the time in efforts and programs to protect fish and wildlife habitat in Indiana that, that benefits all the people that are uh, interested in that and benefits our our, um, our native biological systems. But the notion that that those uh, those activities and those programs are somehow in danger if this constitutional amendment does not pass is just not not the case. I mean, others have described these amendments as solutions in search of a problem, and we wholly agree with that, that uh, if question one does not pass, uh, fishing and hunting will continue to be legal in Indiana. The Indiana Department of Natural Resources will continue to manage our fish and wildlife resources and issue hunting and fishing licenses and and Hoosiers will continue to be able to enjoy those activities and and there's simply you know zero evidence that those activities are under risk at, in Indiana they're protected by law at present they've been uh, acknowledged by our um, our Supreme Court in Indiana that these are uh, legitimate privileges of Hoosiers and um, 
to enshrine this in the Constitution really, we believe, trivializes the Constitution and and um, uh, creates a constitutional right for something that is not um, a common core value like the freedom of speech or freedom of religion that um, that we've seen to protect constitutionally in both the U.S. and Indiana constitutions. And Todd, you were speaking earlier about how in the late 80s or early 90s, that's when we started seeing some folks questioning um, how much we were hunting or the way in which we were hunting. Um, was there something in particular happening that you well, noticed particular happening in Indiana that, that we would need this law in the Constitution? Well, it, you know, it's kind of like those who, who might understand, you know, um, problem solving. It, it's not common, unfortunately, in America that we recognize problems far enough in advance to actually do something about them. Um, but, you know, we really don't have to look any further um, than Humane Society of the United States itself. Their CEO is Wayne Pacelli, and his personal um, uh, interest in stopping hunting, that is all hunting of all types, he's He's made no bones about that fact, that he personally wants to see hunting come to an end. Now, do we have an immediate threat in Indiana? Well, no, but I would say there are a lot of states out west, there are a lot of states in the northeast, where if you had interviewed folks 20, 30 years ago, they would have said, we've got no issues here, we've got no problems. And yet, those who are interested in the anti-hunting paradigm that is removing hunters and anglers from this equation, because that is their end game after all. Um, when they started to approach, it's, and it's not just by ballot, they, they, try, they try to infiltrate game and fish commissions, they try to, to move things legislatively. So I would, I would caution that if, if you look to, to states that aren't like Indiana today, if you, if you talk to folks 20 or 30 years ago, they would probably have generally the same feelings about we're good, we don't have to be concerned when we know at the end of the day that these anti-hunting groups have one particular mission in mind, and that is to put a stop to all of it. That is to convert the wildlife management paradigm that has been so abundantly successful in this country to flip it essentially on its head and move the, remove the backbone from the system itself that is the, the folks who hunt and fish and provide the financial and frankly philosophical support of ongoing fish and wildlife management uh, efforts. So when we know what their ultimate end game is, um, there's no reason, especially respecting how important hunting and fishing is in a state like Indiana, there's no reason for us to wait for the problem to actually arrive at the front door. That would be very, very irresponsible. Yeah, I'm just going to respond to that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that is exactly what he's what exactly what he's saying is that they, it's a solution in search of a problem. There has been um, the HSUS, you know, oftentimes our interests and, and what we're working on intersects with fair chase hunters. And for instance, I'll tell you, just like in Indiana with the canned hunting um, and that's the, the captive hunting of farm raised animals inside of high fence hunting that we've been dealing with over the last several years, which is a far greater um, threat uh, traditional hunting. Um, we work with these groups to, to, or we don't, we, our interests, I guess, intersect with these groups in working on the worst types of wildlife abuse. And that's where we focus our efforts and our energy 
are things where, you know, much of the public um, and a lot of times even these hunting groups, both nationally and locally, agree with us on um, things like bear baiting, um, body gripping traps and snares and canned hunting, like I just stated. These are the types of things that we work on. So to say that there is a threat is, is absolutely fear mongering and there is no threat um, in Indiana or elsewhere um, to get rid of traditional fair chase hunting. Um, And like I said, just to go back on that canned hunting issue, that's something that's going to be a greater threat um, that did pass the Indiana legislature last year. So we were opposed to that um, to wildlife through the spread of disease, um, such as tuberculosis and chronic wasting disease. These are the types of things that we work on. Let me go ahead and give the number again if you'd like to join in, 812-855-0812, 812-855-0812. You know, I feel like this might be a, a surprise to many voters that walk up to uh, vote in a few weeks. And so uh, they might just stand there and think, oh, I didn't see see this coming. So what what are you all, whoever wants to jump in, jump in doing to try to get your point across to these voters? Besides this show. <laughs> well, sure, and, and we appreciate your covering this topic in, on Noon Edition. Um, at, at the council, we, we did speak against the um, enabling resolutions uh, when they were brought up in the Indiana General Assembly and um, also, as part of that process, actually suggested some language that we thought would um, improve the question and uh, reduce the the possibility that the unintended consequences would occur, which are, um, our concern is that um, this language would be used um, to um, ask courts to restrict the ability of the state of Indiana to undertake reasonable uh, fish and wildlife regulations and, and um, that both protect our fish and wildlife resources and protect public safety. Um, but as far as what we're doing to get the word out, um, we've been um, uh, doing social media posts and um, uh, talking to other media outlets and um, got a web page that, that describes our concerns about it um, and communicating with our supporters and, and members of the public who inquire. So we're um, you know, we're certainly using our our um, communication opportunities to make people aware of this and to, again, to get across the central point that, uh, you know, this, when voters go to the, the voting booth, that, that they're not voting um, really in favor or against fishing and hunting. It's just a question of whether uh, it, the language and and this activity is put in the Constitution. Again, if, if this fails to pass, uh, fishing and hunting will still be legal and pursued by Hoosiers uh, well into the future. So it's, it's not at risk, and, and we hope voters will consider the broader implications of this when they cast their vote. But before we go to the phone, the yeah. phone uh, Todd or Aaron, you want to weigh in on that question as well? Just very quickly, uh, so, you know, uh, our communication network is well known. Uh, we obviously have uh, a large contingency of our members in the state, um, as well as a, a large number of supporters in Indiana. Um, 
So we have uh, the traditional communication networks that we've been employing um, in electoral campaigns for a very long time. Obviously, we are communicating uh, directly with our members. We're also engaging in an aggressive social media campaign, uh, regular and recurrent um, email traffic uh, to to various folks in Indiana. Um, So uh, the normal electoral processes that we normally engage in or, or routinely engage in in election years. But I must say, you know, uh, again, the, these are the, these are the red herrings that we hear repeatedly, um, and have over the last 20 or so years when we began working on these constitutional protections for um, hunting and fishing, and and the game and fish managers are not complaining in these states that, uh, you know, Vermont has had this since 1777. Just to use the most extreme example, fish and wildlife managers in Vermont, of course are able to engage in, in the, the effective fish and wildlife management in that state and have been for more than two centuries. And these other states that have enacted these more in, in the more modern era, Alabama, Minnesota, Montana, Nebraska, again, fish and wildlife managers are not complaining. And to reduce this to that simple question, again, I think trivializes, I'll say this again, trivializes how important hunters and anglers are uh, to the continued success of fish and, wild, fish and wildlife management initiatives in Indiana and every other state for that matter, and, and frankly to the benefit of all citizens, even those who don't hunt or fish. Um, so to, to con- continually allege that there's not a problem today, there are folks who, who exist, who live in a lot of different states who would, who would have agreed 30 years ago, and that is no longer the case. We know that Wayne Paselli, the head of HSUS, his ultimate personal goal is to end all hunting, period. So if, if that's his goal, and he's repeated in various, uh, uh, various different ways, he wants to go state by state to suggest that that's never going to happen, that we don't have to be concerned in Indiana, it would be foolish because uh, fish and wildlife management depends on hunters and anglers and it is, has been successful, and that model has, has brought us to today. And, and the, the good folks of Indiana, and I haven't said yet, I, that's actually where I grew up, uh, uh, you know, my friends and neighbors understand how important that is to their life. And, and it's not just recreation. It's, it's more than that. It's, it's about culture and tradition. And, again, all of us enjoying the state's wonderful and abundant resources. And the only way we can do that is to keep things where they are. And, of course, we have to protect against the eventuality of groups like HSUS that want to take that all away. Let's let Aaron jump in before we go to the phones here. Yeah, I mean, I'll start with your actual question that you asked about how we're getting this um, out um, to members and supporters. You know, this is something that we've kept our members and supporters, which, again, we have a large network throughout the state and nationally. Um, We've kept them aware of throughout the legislative sessions in 2014 and 2015, and then um, through media communications most recently. Um, We've had, you know, of course, there have been a lot of articles about this. There's been an editorial, at least one editorial against Um, the Right to Hunt Amendment and um, the Herald Bulletin. Um, And so we we try to apprise them of these articles as they come out as well, Um, emails and and things kind of the same kind of channels that Tim talked about. Um, And just, again, to reiterate, I mean, if we're talking about the sky is falling type of mentality as the NRA um, gentleman just mentioned, um, I think it's the same sort of mentality as you're pushing the right to hunt. Um, There is no problem 
um, this, this has been, like you said, historically um, a big part, you know, of Indiana for a long time. This isn't something that's going to go away if this constitutional amendment isn't passed. It is that solution in search of a problem. And this is just something that is completely unnecessary and something that we don't do for other activities that um, are also a great, you know, boost for the economy or allow people to enjoy other parts um, of our world, of our nature. Um, this isn't something that we do for each and every one of those. So to specify it and to open it up um, to the right to hunt as a constitutional protection, it, it really sets a dangerous precedent. 812-855-0812 is the number to call to participate in today's program. We're talking about the right to hunt and fish. We do have to take a short break. We're going to come back and go straight to the phones. We'll be right back. This is new in addition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. Today we're talking about an amendment that you are probably seeing on the ballot if you've already cashed your ballot here in early voting that would guarantee the right to hunt and fish in Indiana. Today's guest, Tim Maloney from the Hoosier Environmental Council, Todd Adkins from the NRA's Institute for Legislative Action, and Aaron Wong from the Humane Society of the United States. Andy from Bloomington has been waiting on the phone for a while now. Go ahead, Andy. Yes, thank you. Uh, I live in Bloomington, and uh, deer overrun my yard, so uh, I'm certainly in fa favor of, you know, of, of hunting and uh, figuring out a way to control this uh, runaway population. Um, but I also water ski in Lake Monroe, and, uh, you know, uh, I don't, I don't feel like I... I need a constitutional, you know, amendment to guarantee my right to water ski. Uh, I, I agree with some of the sentiment expressed uh, that the uh, NRA is uh, running a sort of scare tactic. Uh, I don't believe that this uh, warrants a constitutional amendment. It, it's just, you know, I mean, people are going to be able to hunt and fish forever. In Indiana, people are so you know in favor of guns and so forth, and the scare tactic that it somehow you know the the whole fish and wildlife system will collapse if we you know don't support it financially is is really not not logical to me. So I you know I'm very much in favor of hunting and fishing, but I I don't think it should be at the level of a constitutional amendment. 
Okay, Andy, thank you for the comment. 812-855-0812 is the number to call in with, with your comments. And Todd, I'll let you go ahead and respond to what Andy said. Again, I, I, I understand this sentiment generally, um, but, you know, the, you know, I, it, it's fortunate at times to be part of a national organization so that, you know, we can see trends and we understand uh, kind of at the 30,000-foot level uh, how these groups operate. And, and, again, the simple truth of the matter is, is that HSUS, Humane Society of the United States, has as their head, their CEO, an individual who personally wants to end hunting. Uh, not types of hunting, not some hunting, not, not certain species, not canned hunting. He wants to end it all. That's his personal motivation. That's how he got involved in the movement itself. And he's kind of been the architect then of the various and sundry efforts that they've engaged in nationwide um, to, to curtail hunting. Um, he's very politically savvy, so they don't, they don't come straight at you. They're not going to come straight at us. And we watch them utilize the ballot process. We've watched them try to infiltrate fish and game commissions. Um, so this protection doesn't seem immediately necessary today. I understand that. But if you think, go back to our founders, uh, a lot of the protections provided for in constitutions aren't put there because they're immediately necessary. They're put there understanding that at a later date, they may become absolutely unquestionably necessary. So that's what these are, are about. And all of these red herrings about we won't be able to actually stop certain types of hunting. Look, this, this retains authority in the General Assembly uh, to regulate hunting it does the, the very language by its nature it does and we have not with similar language in other states fish and wildlife managers have not been able to conduct their jobs in a professional way um, the part that i think uh, worries hsus so much when we put these protections in is they are less able to actually drive wildlife oriented questions in in emotional ways just drive it by pure emotion instead of what kind of brought us to our great success, relying on sound scientific management to do so. So I understand, um, I, I appreciate the concern about whether or not this needs to be in the Constitution today. It, it doesn't necessarily need to be there today. We obviously uh, uh, understand and, and get it to the, to the ballot because we understand that it will be necessary at some day, understanding where HSUS wants to take us. Tim, how do you see this playing into other regulations in the state and how this might impact future regulations on hunting and fishing? Well, sure, to be more specific about our concerns are, are um, the ability of the um, state to not only adopt rules that regulate fishing and hunting activities, but uh, all the other um, oversight activities that the DNR um, carries out to generally protect our fish and wildlife resources, to protect threatened and endangered species or other types of animals that are not hunted, um, not necessarily because they're rare, but just because they're not typically game animals and, and not pursued in that fashion. And uh, it certainly correct that there is qualifying language in the um, in the amendment language, uh, but 
what you also have to understand is that under um, our case law in Indiana, um, our courts have determined that um, any regulation of a constitutionally protected activity has to meet a higher burden than simply regulating an activity that is, um, you know, otherwise legal and and practiced by people. So, um, uh, you know, we don't anticipate that the the DNR is going to change their practices if this if this is adopted. The the concern is that. Um, interests who want to, you know, ha- just have unrestrained uh, practice of fishing and hunting would challenge reasonable restrictions adopted by the state of Indiana, uh, either to, um, you know, how they adopt um, uh, bag limits or hunting seasons or the type of weapons that are used to to hunt um, or the type of equipment that's used to fish. Uh, that those are all, you know, again, reasonable activities of our our wildlife managers, but would those be, um, uh, would the opportunities and, and prospects for overturning them or limiting them be uh, improved by this language passing? And, uh, you know, the idea that this is a, a red herring, I just point out that you can never guarantee or predict precisely what courts are going to do in the future, and that's why so many groups, including the NRA, are very interested in in candidates that, you know, will support um, uh, appointments of particular types of judges because they share that concern about what courts might do in the future. So that concern is, is entirely legitimate, uh, regardless of what your point of view is on this topic. Let's go back to the phones. Phil from Bloomington, uh, you have a question? Go ahead. Yeah, it was, it was kind of twofold. The Humane Society has already stated that they are they, their goal is to outlaw hunting. You can't get a dog in their own county animal shelter without signing an agreement that says you will not use that dog for hunting. So that mm-hmm. being said, that they, these groups are against hunting, and they want to outlaw that. And these groups that are represented there are constantly trying to bring up bills to inhibit hunting. Now, the other side of this is, though, I'm a hunter, and I'm not sure I'm feeling comfortable. Why does this bill have to be crafted so the decisions about hunting lie with the legislature? Why can't the bill be crafted so the biologists within DNR um, that have the expertise in which to make those decisions, why can't the bill be crafted so those decisions on deciding the seasons, the hunting limits, and everything else, um, be left with DNR and not with the legislature. Because the legislature, politics often enters the situation, and the DNR is against canned hunting, and the legislature is for canned hunting. So I'll take my answer off the radio. Okay, thank you for the call, Phil. 812-855-0812 is the number to call in with your question. Um, I'm wondering who's best respond to that. Tim, can you sort of respond to like wh- why we reg- like who's in why it is that it's regulated the way it is currently? Mm-hmm. Well, under the standard lawmaking process, typically um, legislators, be it the U.S. Congress or state uh, general assemblies, uh, set generally set broad policies in statute, and then those uh, policies, the the details are filled out by uh, agencies adopting 
rules and regulations to implement those policies. And uh, certainly in the in the field of of um, fish and wildlife management, it is entirely reasonable to to uh, depend a lot on the the scientific and technical staff who can um, uh, in, inject uh, science uh, into policy considerations, which is the way it should be. But, uh, you know, we, we've never had the situation where um, fish and wildlife policy or really any other uh, policies are made solely based on science. The um, the social aspects of policy are always brought into these uh, considerations, and and even when the Indiana DNR is proposing new fish and wildlife rules, it's not just um, that their biologists say this is what the rule's going to be. They always reach out to the public to get public feedback on that, and and as a result of that, sometimes that spills over into the legislature, and, and legislators decide they need to to decide these questions rather than leaving it up to the agency people and that we, we see that happen all the time and it, I mean we can all debate about whether that's good or bad but it's just the way our system works and and um, I'll just leave it at that so uh, and, and, and I would say I uh, actually Aaron, largely I agree with to... what Tim said but with one caveat just to answer the the caller's direct question, it, it, it doesn't leave it, it, it this, this constitutional amendment question one doesn't leave it in the General Assembly. It actually uh, provides for the what Tim just described, the power sharing mode, which is what we generally have now. Because if you read the language carefully, it said, subject only to the laws prescribed by the General Assembly and rules prescribed by virtue of the authority of the General Assembly. So what they're describing there is is what the DNR does now, uh, and the uh, Natural Resources Commission does now. And as Tim said, in, in our democracy, that's generally a power-sharing arrangement where general and broad authority is prescribed by the General Assembly or, like, or a given legislature, and then various rulemaking agencies engage in the more specific work. So that I don't see where question one actually changes that general arrangement between the General Assembly and the DNR. And this is Aaron, if I can just uh, comment for one on the, uh, the comment that the, the caller made. I think he may have been talking about his local Humane Society perhaps and not the Humane Society of the United States. But just to also go on, he, he kind of made a good point is that yes, it's, it's going to continue to be in the legislature's hand of the NRC, but it does tie their hands and some of the things that the wildlife biologists and the NRC and DNR are able to um, to think about and to use as a possible man, uh, management technique because it does say that they um, they would that hunting and fishing shall be the mean, the preferred means of managing and controlling wildlife. So as we see, you know, um, science evolve and um, public sentiment evolve about wildlife management, if DNR wants to consider a different means, then there's going to be this challenge, and this is where the lawmakers um, and the rulemakers' hands are tied, which is something that is, is dangerous as well. And, and i got to tell you, you know, we can't have it both ways. Either um, hunting and fishing, you know, there's no problem. We don't have to worry about this protection. Or our position is we, in fact, do. And if you carefully look at this language, um, it said, shall be a preferred means. It doesn't say shall be the only means. And 
What I'm hearing uh, Tim and Aaron both describe is, in fact, we don't have to worry because hunting and fishing are the preferred means in Indiana, thereby this amendment isn't necessary. They can't have it both ways. So I don't see that this language actually creates a new paradigm, a paradigm where we have to worry. This is the argument we've faced for more than 20 years now. Uh, in the states, when, when uh, right to hunt and fish amendments are actually passed, and the fish and wildlife managers in these states, and some of them for more than 20 years now, agree today that this does not pose the type of problems that are typically uh, argued about when, when we're going for passage of these things. It just doesn't happen. We got a comment from a listener who is who calls the language, the right to hunt, deceptive, saying that that leads people to believe that this is a vote on whether to allow hunting or not. So, I mean... I, I guess, Todd, we can let you respond to that. It seems like it does lead to some confusion, though, among voters on, on what exactly they are voting for. Well, I, th I think, of course, that, you know, when it comes down to voting for candidates, let alone issues, there's always going to be a small percentage uh, where that might be a problem. But I think what we've found in these states where this is passed, they, these, these uh, amendments generally passed by wide majorities, for the simple reason that that I, I know my friends and neighbors in Indiana would all agree that we do have a right to hunt and fish. And uh, because of the qualifying language, as Tim describes it, where we're, we seek to maintain the status quo where fish and wildlife managers will make decisions based on sound science, that's kind of where we should be. And I think the vast majority of, of Hoosiers get that when they think of the right to hunt and fish. That's precisely what they mean, as they know it. Another comment we got, they're asking why the NRA would choose to get involved in language that's in the state constitution in Indiana. Why is this being left up to a national group? Um, Todd, again, I think that's probably directed oh, towards sure. you. Oh, sure. You know, uh, we, we have a vast membership in the state of Indiana. You know, a lot of times we're mischaracterized as the gun lobby, and all we do is, like, work for— uh, firearms manufacturers, that's actually couldn't be anything uh, further from the truth. We have a vast number of, of members in Indiana, uh, tens of thousands of Hoosiers, in fact, are members, and we have many more supporters uh, in the state, and uh, a great majority of our members hunt and fish, that's simple. Um, and this is obviously to protect the, 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 our very successful fish and wildlife ma management paradigm in Indiana and other states. So we're working on their behalf uh, in promoting this amendment. Let's go to the phones now. Rick from Bloomington has a question. Rick, go ahead. Hi. I just, it's more of a comment, I guess, but I'm very pro-hunting, traditional hunting, not canned hunting. But I, I, I think of the phrase, I was born but not yesterday. The, all of the arguments the gentleman from the NRA is using are just a smokescreen to cover up that this is NRA control. There was not a groundswell of request for this amendment because, as the other guest have pointed out, it's not a problem. The other, you know, thing I would have to say is um, the NRA. Uh, for him to say. He's bringing up the president of the Humane Society. 
which is kind of ridiculous considering the NRA is the most powerful lobbying group in the country, that they're worried about this. This is a fear tactic to get control over our local laws and our ability to make decisions for ourselves. That's my comment. Thank you, Rick. We have a couple minutes, uh, about 10 minutes left here in the program if you wanted to get in your call. The number today is 812-855-0812. Todd, did you want to respond yeah, to the I, caller or address, address his uh, concerns? And, and I appreciate the comments by the gentleman. Uh, the simple truth of the matter is Humane Society of the United States has a vast budget. Um, it's at last count approaching 200 million. It's I think it might be around 170 million somewhere in there. Um, it's a vast enterprise with a very focused mission. Um, although a lot of people believe that HSUS uh, spends a lot of their money with respect to local shelters, that's just simply not the case. It's a political organization, and of course I work for a political organization, but I freely admit that. Um, we don't hide who we are, but HSUS ha does have a very large uh, budget that I would say rivals the National Rifle Association, and they are very determined to, to meet this ultimate end, to drive towards this ultimate goal they have, uh, at least the CEO has it, uh, of ending uh, all hunting. So uh, it's not, uh, if, the, if the allegation is this, is this isn't unfair to attack HSUS, trust me, they can that they have vast resources they can take care of themselves. You know, just to jump in on that, it's something about not working with local shelters. We actually work a lot with local shelters, and, and just as one example of the many things that we've done just here in Indiana is we work with a shelter up in northwest Indiana to address uh, pet homelessness and um, pet care deserts up there, working with the Humane Society with our Pets for Life program, which has brought a lot of vet services, uh, food services, and, and things of that nature to folks in the Gary area who otherwise wouldn't have the availability to get to these services. It's just one of the instances that we work um, with shelters in the state of Indiana. We've uh, worked on law enforcement trainings, shelter trainings, um, specifically dealing with cat trainings, um, and we've, we've been able to help out our local shelters in extreme emergencies and situations where they've had large intakes of animals. Um, so, so to go to that point, I think, is, is taking away from what the actual issue is here, which is that we don't need this amendment, that there is no threat, as we've seen. This is a big economy in Indiana, um, and, and this is a way, again, um, that, it, that is going to have in, unintended consequences for our state and our wildlife management. Um, it's a way to take away somewhat local, I guess, control or the control of the DNR and NRC to manage wildlife in the state, um, and it's something that we don't need. And it's interesting that the last several callers have been in favor of hunting but opposed to this amendment. Uh, yes, and I would just add that to return this back to the kind of the Indiana focus of the discussion, uh, as the earlier caller said, they're, they're uh, observing the legislative discussions about this issue. There's been no groundswell to, to establish constitutional protection, uh, nor, again, have we seen any... Um, meaningful effort of any kind to eliminate hunting in Indiana. Uh, what has been the focus of our um, policy discussions in Indiana has been the topic of canned hunting and and um, where uh, the environmental organizations, the animal welfare organizations, and the organized hunting groups all joined forces to uh, try to prevent the spread of this industry in Indiana. And f if you're from a pro-hunting standpoint and you're concerned about 
um, threats to hunting or public acceptance of hunting, you couldn't find a better topic than and concern than uh, the practice of canned hunting. And, and um, you know, that's the kind of thing that uh, those who want to defend traditional hunting should be concerned about and not, you know, um, just absent threats to from, you know, animal welfare organizations. I think we have time for yeah, one I more. I agree with Tim. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Let's go ahead and get to one. We have one more phone call. Pete from Bloomington. We just have a couple minutes. Do you have a quick comment? Hi, Pete. Are you there? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, I went to the Indiana Voter Registration website to uh, verify my voter registration because of recent news reports. And there was a button to click that said uh, that was entitled See Your Ballot. And I did that. And there was my ballot, but there was no, there was nothing on that page about constitutional amendments. That would have been an obvious, logical place. <clears throat> and you've been discussing lack of public awareness of this, of the existence of this, uh, of this issue. So there you go. That's all. Mm, okay. Have you? Well, I thanks, I, Pete. Yeah, uh, I actually did uh, do the same thing this morning to to check on um, the ballot, and and when I was online, I was able to find it. Now there's, you have to scroll down to get to the the part where you you reach the public questions, both about you know retaining judges in office, and then there was the constitutional amendment question one. So I I did find it online. Okay, we only have two minutes left in our program, but a question we got in the newsroom this morning, someone wondering if this does place hunting ahead of other non-legal forms of wildlife management. I know it's been a concern here in Bloomington, talking about things such as contraception and relocation and, f and fencing in particular with deer. So I'll give that one to you, Tim. Well, again, that's the the concern let's let's take bloomington for example if an urban area um, is concerned about deer overpopulation and they're trying to figure out how to to deal with that and they decide not to use uh... traditional hunting to um, control the populations as dnr does in the state parks uh, that's just done by regular hunters uh, would would that city or town decision to use some other means be subject to challenge because of this uh, amendment language, and I think that's a legitimate concern. Okay. Unfortunately, I do believe we are out of time for today. I'm sorry we could not get to more in today's program, but I want to thank our guests for joining us, Tim Maloney, Todd Adkins, Aaron Wong. Thank you very much for being on the program today. Thanks for having us. It was a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Appreciate it. For our producer, Drew Dodlin, and engineer, Mike Paskash, and co-host, Joe Wren, I'm Sarah Whitmire, and this is Noon Edition. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. 
More information at smithville.com.